Hello and welcome to a special edition of The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Georgina Godwin. This week we've marked a very special date, the 60th anniversary of the first manned flight into space, the very first time a human left the planet and changed history. To herald the occasion, we've put together a series on space exploration and the exciting, scary and fantastic achievements by the very first cosmonauts. He turns his head to the right where there's a porthole and he sees something utterly extraordinary. And he says over the radio, I can see the Earth. So join me over the next hour as we hear from the author and documentary filmmaker Stephen Walker on everything from the US to the Soviet Union and Yuri Gagarin. That's coming up right now on The Curator with me, Georgina Godwin. So, welcome to this special edition of The Curator with me, Georgina Godwin. We featured the 60th anniversary of the first manned flight to space with Stephen Walker, based on his book Beyond, the astonishing story of the first human to leave our planet and journey into space. Stephen has a BA in history from Oxford and an MA in the history of science from Harvard. His previous book, Shockwave, Countdown to Hiroshima, was a New York Times bestseller and is in development as a movie for working title films to be directed by Kerry Fukunaga with a screenplay by Tom Stoppard. He's also an award-winning documentary director. His films have won an Emmy, a BAFTA and the Rose Door, Europe's most prestigious documentary award. Stephen, take it away. O nine o seven a.m., April the twelfth, nineteen sixty-one. A top-secret rocket site in the USSR. A young Russian sits inside a tiny capsule on top of the Soviet Union's most powerful intercontinental ballistic missile, originally designed to carry a nuclear warhead, and blasts into the skies. His name is Yuri Gagarin, and he is about to make history. That's the voice of Stephen Walker talking about his book Beyond, which tells the thrilling story behind that epic flight on its 60th anniversary. Stephen, welcome to the show. Tell us the genesis of this story. The genesis of this story really was my realising that we were coming up to an epic moment in human history, the 60th anniversary of the first human being to leave the biosphere in three and a half billion years of life on this planet. And if you think about that, that is enormous. This idea that all life as it existed on the planet has clung to the planet. And on April the 12th, 1961, at 09.07 a.m., one man sits on top of that rocket And a few minutes later, he's outside the cave. He's outside the biosphere and he's looking down and he's seeing the planet as no eye, human or otherwise, has ever seen the planet before. So I started researching this book and I realised that it kind of made sense to tell the story in a very compressed and dramatic way. So looking at what the Americans were doing and what the Soviets were doing, who were racing each other, back in the late 1950s and early into the 1960s to be the first to put a human being in space. My book, and in a sense my whole story, starts later in that dramatic narrative. It starts in December, late December 1960, with a dog flight that the Soviets had put up to pave the way to the first human flight. And the dog flight goes wrong, like so many of their dog flights goes wrong. And all of this is in total secrecy. It goes terribly wrong. And on all of these dog flights, the KGB insist that there are bombs on the spacecraft. These spacecraft are kind of versions of the kind of spacecraft that a human would one day soon be flying in. And it goes off course. And the reason why there are bombs there is that if it were to end up this spacecraft in a capitalist country, a capitalist part of the world, then 
the bomb would automatically be triggered to detonate, taking the dogs inside and the spacecraft with all its technological secrets into smithereens. So the Americans would not get their hands on it. And I start my story in Siberia with a bunch of guys looking for a spacecraft with two dogs inside and a live bomb on board at a 60 hour countdown. And they've got to get there before they blow up the dogs and the spacecraft. They need to get the dogs back. They need to get the evidence home. They need to see if this stuff, this technology is working. And the reason is that the Americans at exactly the same time are also preparing an animal flight. In this case, not using a dog, but using a chimpanzee called Ham. So you've got these animal flights on both sides of the Iron Curtain in the heart of the Cold War, and they're happening almost exactly the same time. And into this mix, you've got on beyond the animals that are preparing, you've got the humans that will come afterwards. On the American side, you've got the so-called Mercury 7, seven astronauts, top, top, top test pilots. I mean, they are the hottest test pilots in the country. They are introduced at a press conference to the public in April 1959. They've been training by this time for 20 odd months. They are incredibly famous. They are rock stars of their time. Everybody knows who they are. They're plastered all over Life magazine and goodness knows what. And on the other side of the Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union, you have 20 cosmonauts training in absolute secrecy. And when I say secrecy, I mean secrecy. I mean, these guys are not even allowed to tell their families what they're doing and what they're training for. Kennedy has just become president of the United States. He is inaugurated in mid-January, 1961. He has inherited a very dangerous world. The Iron Curtain is a very real curtain and the world is hot with dangers. And it is essential that this flight into space happens, whichever superpower wins that flight is winning not just a technological victory, but is quite literally changing the course of the world potentially, because in such a divided world, it means that those nations that are uncommitted may turn towards the superpower that has achieved such a sensational, stunning success. So everything is at stake in this battle. And in the first part of my book, the story which starts with those men finding eventually that capsule ends with the flight of the first chimpanzee called Ham at the end of January, 1961, President Kennedy's now been in the job for two weeks. Everybody in NASA is hanging on to see what happens with this flight because if the flight is successful, an American astronaut will go next. And so on January the 31st, 1961, this little chimpanzee is put in a little box and he's taken to a rocket in the early hours of the morning, which is steaming on the launch pad. And he is taken by his trainer to the top and put in a Mercury capsule spacecraft, which is identical to the one that a human astronaut will soon fly. And in his little box is something called a psychomotor, which is basically two levers that the chimpanzee has to press in response to flashing lights in a particular sequence. If he gets it right, he gets it right. If he gets it wrong, his feet are going to be zapped with electric shocks. And he's in this capsule and eventually the rocket takes off and things go wrong unexpectedly. And one of the key things that goes wrong is that the fuel runs out half a second early, 0.5 of a second early, and there is an abort. And the chimpanzee is rocketed far too high into space in a great lobbing arc like a ballistic missile. And the forces on his body are horrific. His heartbeat goes through the roof. They can see it in mission control. His nose is bleeding and he's got bruises over his body. And in this horrific situation, he tumbles back into the Atlantic Ocean, hundreds of miles off course. And his capsule starts taking on water as they try and find him. And they only find him in the very last moment. And the capsule is helicoptered to the deck of a carrier. And out comes Ham and he's given an apple. 
and he smiles and press photographers photograph that smile and it goes around the world as look how successful you are we've sent a chimpanzee into space and he comes back smiling but in fact jane goodall the great specialist and expert on primates actually described that smile as the most extreme form of terror she had ever seen on a chimpanzee and because the flight actually had gone much less well than people had sort of thought it would do, a decision is sitting there gnawing away at NASA. And that decision is, do we send a human next or not? Space is open to us now, and our eagerness to share its meaning is not governed by the efforts of others. We go into space. Because whatever mankind must undertake, free men must fully share. Well, they're still left with a decision. And they're left with a decision. And they're left with a decision. And what I mean by that is that no decision is being made. On February the 8th, 1961, Kennedy, the new, untested, less than a month in the job, President John F. Kennedy, who we all think of as being decisive and all those, this is not a decisive Kennedy. This is a worried Kennedy. He stands up and he says publicly in a press conference in Washington, DC, that we are not willing to kill an astronaut on our watch. We need to go cautiously. Now, what lay behind those words is terribly important because what's significant here is that unlike the Russians, whose launches were all in secret, so that if things went wrong, those things were just simply covered up or even just lied about, obviously in the United States, with a very different culture of openness, that could not be the case. I mean, it's also taxpayers' money we're talking about here. So what it meant was that this is the era where television really is starting to happen in the US. 80 million people would get to see the launch of an American astronaut, the first American astronaut, on their TV sets. And can you imagine in the middle of the Cold War, with the Vietnam War about to start, with the Berlin Wall about to be built, with Fidel Castro in Cuba, and goodness knows what else, what it would have meant for an American astronaut in the first US attempt to send a man to space blew up on live television in front of 18 million viewers, let alone the rest of the world. So he counsels caution in that speech. The Soviets, who don't need to worry about caution in the same way, are watching. They can read everything. It's all there in the New York Times. I've read all the New York Times for that period. Everything is laid out. All the hesitations, all the doubts are laid out. And the architect of the space, essentially the whole, not just the, not just the, the whole space program, but really the missile program, the man who first was responsible to send the first Soviet satellite Sputnik into space, the first dog into space. This guy is called Sergei Korolev, is the secret genius in the Soviet Union behind all of this, an incredible character and a big character in my book. He's actually dying at this time. And he's a man who's had great visions ever since he was a child. And his mum used to read him stories about flying around the world on a magic carpet and looking down on the earth. And so this guy, all he wants is to be in space, but he can't go himself, but he wants to send younger cosmonauts to do what he could not do himself. He is so secret that the CIA never find out his identity in his lifetime. And this guy has a wife who is an English translator and she's reading everything to him. And he realizes that their own program needs to speed up. They've got a gap. It's not much of a gap. It may be days, it may be a couple of weeks, and this is after two years of hard work, but there is a gap. So we know what happened next because I have access in the book to a secret diarist, a guy who was the head of cosmonaut training, who was secretly and illegally recording events on a diary every night about everything that was happening at the highest level in the space program during the day. It's incredible. It's like having a, all my documentary instincts are kind of there. This is a fly on the wall right in the center of the 
epicenter of all of these key events. And this guy is writing in his diary, we are accelerating. We are not even going to test things. We're, we're just going to go for this in a very, very tight schedule. So they basically pump up very, very quickly while the Americans are sort of delaying and hesitating and which, which way are we going to go and should we, shouldn't we and all of that. They pump up two very, very quick in succession flights, which are basically dress rehearsals of the first human flight. Once around the earth, landing back on Soviet soil. In each case, they put in the capsule, they put a dog, again, because they can't get away from these dogs, and also a cosmonaut, but not a real one, a dummy dressed in a spacesuit called Ivan Ivanovich, which is a bit like John Smith. And they put in the cosmonaut's stomach a tape recorder, which broadcasts sounds of a Russian choir as it goes around the world so that they can test with communications, radio communications. So they, does it work? Does it not work? Can you hear? Can you not hear? They also, and I always think this might be a snub to the Americans, have a recording of a recipe for Russian cabbage soup, which is also broadcast from the stomach of this dummy as he flies around the world. And then they send up these two dress rehearsals within a few weeks of each other, a few days of each other, actually, one in early March, one towards the end of March. And they send them up knowing that the results of those are going to determine whether it's actually even remotely safe to send a human being up. And off they go. Both of these dummy flights, they go one after the other. There are things that are not even tested, but they do it. And they're successful enough. And the Americans are still hesitating, even though Alan Shepard, the astronaut who was designated to be the first American in space, is yelling at everybody he can, begging, begging the highest levels in NASA to let him fly because the Russians are so close, but they won't. And so the Soviets at the end of March in a secret meeting, which I have recordings of, sit there and say, you know what, we're gonna do this. And they make an appeal to the essentially the Politburo, the Presidium of the Communist Party, which is essentially Khrushchev, who was the premier. And they ask for approval to send the first human being into space within the next two weeks. And that request is sent on March the 30th, 1960. Three days later, the answer comes back, essentially from Khrushchev, which is a big Soviet-speak document which boils down to one simple word, which is yes. And that starts the process at the beginning of April that is going to lead the first human being either to get into space and survive, or in some number of gruesome ways, to be killed. Мне нравится что проводы, картов, думаю, нахуя Да, потом выступают тяжелые будни, On April the 5th, 1961, which is just seven days before the first human flight, six cosmonauts in Moscow who've been training since the beginning of 1960 for this moment say goodbye to their wives and families. Their wives and families know by now, not the families so much, but the wives know by now what it is their husbands are going, one of their husbands, as it were, because only one is going to do this flight, are going to attempt in the next few days. And it's a quite traumatic moment when they say goodbye, early hours of April the 5th, 1961. And I actually have a letter that was given to me by Gagarin's daughter, which was a goodbye letter to his family in case he never came back, that he'd written a day or two before. And it's an incredibly beautiful letter in which he says, if I don't come back from this, if I'm chosen and I don't come back from this flight, then I want you to get on with the rest of your life. Now imagine, this is a guy who had a child aged nearly two and a baby that had been born three weeks earlier. And his wife is in her mid-twenties and she's left with these tiny children and her husband leaves that apartment 
at five o'clock in the morning to go to the military airport to fly to Kazakhstan, which is where the rocket complex is, the biggest and most secret rocket complex on the planet. And he tells her at the last moment, I don't know if it's going to be me that's chosen. It might be. It probably is me. But he also lies about the date. He said, if it happens, Valia, her name is Valentina, it will happen on April the 14th. And he's been instructed to do that by the head of cosmonaut training, a man who kept a secret diary, illegal diary that could have actually landed him in the gulag and to which I have access. And we know that this man, Kaman, in the secret diaries tells us that he told all of these cosmonauts to give the wrong date to their wives so that they wouldn't be disturbed and worried on that day. And so off go the six cosmonauts in these planes. They're split into two planes in case of a crash, because obviously it could be that you lose th you know, all your cosmonaut team in one go if something ghastly and awful were to happen. And they take the long flight to Kazakhstan from Moscow. And they arrive at this place, this cosmodrome, as the Russians called it, this missile complex, which is enormous to give you some idea of it, it's a hundred times bigger than Cape Canaveral's missile base in Florida that NASA were using for its launches. It's absolutely vast in the middle of the Kazakh steppe and they step out into this, this landscape which is filled with tulips. It's a very brief, brief spring in this part of the world. And they have then just a few days before one of them is going to fly. And this is the key at this point, because which one is it? There are six, as I mentioned. It comes down to sort of three, and then in the end, it comes down to just two. A man called German Titov and Yuri Gagarin. And the interesting things about these two is that they are incredibly close friends. I mean, you've got to imagine these people are rivals for first cosmonaut of the Soviet Union and quite possibly of the whole world. And they have this rivalry is intense. It boils off them like steam. But what you have to understand is they're also close neighbors, close friends, and they share a tragedy because Titov, as it lived next door to Gagarin, Titov and his wife Tamara had a little boy called Igor at the same, probably the same age as Yuri Gagarin's eldest daughter. And at the age of eight months, this little boy, Igor, died in late 1960, just a few months previously. Yuri Gagarin and his wife were absolutely with the Titovs throughout this process. I know that because I interviewed German Titov's wife in Moscow. She could barely talk about this tragedy that happened to her son. 60 years previously, but she did say that Yuri was amazing. Gagarin was extraordinary. He was right there for Titov. So put that into the mix now. We're racing towards the big day. There are two men who have this, this one is going to make immortality and the other one is never going to be immortal. One is going to take this flight. The other one isn't. And they are men who love each other, who've been there, who've shared this tragedy. So there's a richness to this story, which is very powerful. And then just three days before the flight, on the 9th of April, 1961, the two men are invited into the cosmonaut head's training office and told which one it will be. And the man that is chosen is Yuri Gagarin just three days before the flight. And Titov is devastated. They come out of that meeting and somebody comes up to Titov and says, well, it's not so bad. I mean, you're gonna get the next flight after this. And Titov says, who was the man who first discovered America? And this guy says, well, it was, it was Columbus. And he says, and who was the second? And the guy says, I don't remember. And he says, that's the point. But the decision is made. It's going to be Gagarin. Titov will be his backup. And his only chance of immortality now is if something goes wrong with Gagarin, something, he gets the flu, he has a fall, something, on the last hours before this flight leaves the ground on April the 12th, 1961. Я один. 
Как слышите меня? Буду вам транслировать команды. Прием. Минутная готовность. Кедр. Я заря один. Внимание. Минутная готовность. Минутная готовность. Заря один. Я кедр. Вас понял. Минутная готовность. Занимал исходное положение. Занял. Поэтому несколько задержал к ответам прием. Ключ на старт. Ключ на старт. Есть старт. Затяжка один. We are on the flight, and just before we're on the flight, I must tell you this extraordinary thing. As I mentioned in the last episode, there are these two rivals for first place, German Titov, Yuri Gagarin. Yuri Gagarin is the one chosen, Titov is his backup. And I, it, the most extraordinary thing happens the night before. They sleep side by side in a cottage the night before the flight, literally a cottage. And what they do not know is that secret strain gauges have been put under each of their mattresses with wires fed through little holes in their bedroom to other people watching on banks of instruments in a different room. And what those people are watching is how many times these guys are moving in their beds at night, literally. And it is absolutely true to say that had Yuri Gagarin moved more in his bed than German Titov, thereby not having a very restless night, he might have lost his place for immortality in that very last moment. So it's not even then fully decided. They get up, they have a, a spacey sort of space food breakfast out of tubes, horrible food. They have a medical. Gagarin is irritatingly perfect. He is incredibly healthy. They get driven out on a bus. I mean, it looks like a school bus across that I've taken the ride myself across the Kazakh steppe to the waiting rocket. Now this rocket is the biggest missile in the world. It is a missile so powerful that it's able to carry a thermonuclear weapon all the way from the Soviet Union to New York and essentially destroy the whole of New York. It's that powerful. But instead of a nuclear weapon on the top, essentially what there is is a sphere, a padded sphere, actually. And inside that padded sphere is going to sit the cosmonaut, which in this case is Yuri Gagarin. He's at the base of the gantry. He says his goodbyes. It's terribly Russian. No one wants to let him go because there is at least a 50-50 chance of him being killed on this mission. I mean, it is that dangerous. There's so many things that go, this rocket has blown up, all kinds of things have happened before. He goes up on an elevator, he's strapped into the capsule, he waits. There is a last minute panic where the contact lights showing that the hatch had not been sealed properly were flashing. And they didn't know whether this was an electrical fault or whether the hatch was actually not sealed, in which case he would die if he went into space with an unsealed hatch. So they rapidly actually have to put the seal back off. They take it off and then they put it back on again. And all this time, Yuri Gagarin sings songs. In fact, he requests music into his capsule. And there are these guys in a missile bunker and they're having to give him sort of piped music. I don't know where they found it from, but they pipe music into his capsules. He's been kind of cool as a cucumber. And there's a wonderful moment where he says, how's my heart rate? And somebody on the ground says, it's looking very low. He says, is it still beating? You know, he's able to, he has that right stuff, if you like. At 09.07 a.m., they launch. This thing, I've seen one of these things go, actually from the same pad, and the noise is like nothing on Earth. It is an earthquake of sound. It is a wall of sound. It is a million pounds of thrust. It is so much raw power and noise and fury. And it's just a fact that the, the launch bunker was about 100 feet underground, because if this thing blew up on the pad, you just, everyone would just be killed. But it is filmed, and there is an incredible moment as Gagarin leaves the ground, sitting in his little capsule, little spherical padded cell, if you like, on top of this rocket. There is this moment where he yells a word. He says, Poyakali, like this. And you hear it on the radio, and it means, let's go. And it's a kind of a call, not just for him, not just for the Soviet Union, but I like to think of it as a call for all humanity. Off he goes, and there's a heart-stopping, 11 minutes for him to reach orbit. But 11 minutes later, he does. And there's this extraordinary moment, I think, try to put you in this moment in the book, where he suddenly feels 
that he's being lifted off his seat, first human being to experience weightlessness in space. And he turns his head to the right where there's a porthole and he sees something utterly extraordinary. And he says over the radio, I can see the earth. I can see the earth. He says it twice. And then a series of adjectives of just, you know, nothing can describe the splendor, the majesty, the delicacy, the fragility, the beauty of what he sees in that moment. The first eye, human or otherwise, from this planet to see this planet from above. And he races across the Soviet Union at 18,000 miles an hour. I mean, the sort of speed that would get you from New York to London in 12 minutes. He goes right the way across the Pacific and goes from essentially Alaska right the way down to the northern tip of Antarctica, racing into a fast motion sunset. Much of the time, he's also out of radio contact with the ground. So he is alone above the earth looking at splendor and describing the radiant light of the sun unfiltered by the atmosphere as it slides across his portholes it is an incredible moment in all history and it is the first for anyone to experience this but he still has to come down his orbit is announced on the radio because it's already happened he's up there this is the first time his wife discovers that he's up there on that day and the rest of his family have no idea that he's even at training for this and discover it on the radio on that day. And of course the terror is, he's up there, the Soviets are celebrating, but the family know he still has to come down. And the coming down is just extraordinarily dramatic because something goes horribly wrong and he is incredibly lucky to survive it at all. I mean, it's an incredibly dramatic moment. And we know about it because Yuri Gagarin gave a secret briefing, which was recorded the day after, which was kept classified for decades by the Soviets and by the Russians, which describes actually what really went wrong. Anyway, he lands by parachute, not inside his capsule, and he lands in a potato field, and there's an old lady there, and there is, he's way off course, and there is an old lady there and her granddaughter. And they're both looking at this man landing by parachute in an orange spacesuit, and they run away. I mean, there's no one else to meet him. And he rushes up to them and he says, help, help, I'm safe, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm Soviet comrades. And they come tentatively back and he says to them, having traveled 106 minutes around the globe, he says to them, I need a phone. I need to find somebody to report the fact I'm safely on the ground. Do you have a phone nearby? And they say, well, there is a phone in the local collector village you can go to, but you'll have to take a horse and a cart. So he has just traveled all the way around the world in 106 minutes. And now he's looking at the possibility of having to bridle. She actually says, do you know how to bridle a horse to get to a phone to report the fact that he's actually landed back on Earth? Gagarin has landed in a ploughed field full of potatoes and he looks like he's going to have to get a horse and a cart in order to get to the nearest telephone because he's landed way off course because everything has gone wrong in this flight that could possibly go wrong apart from actually killing him. Anyway, he is found by a military brigade and they find him and they take him to their base. It's sort of like a missile base, not very far, a secret missile base, where he's finally able to make his phone call to say, I'm safe, I'm on the ground, I'm safe. But what he notices is, as he steps out into this missile base, having made his phone call, he is mobbed by all these people that have come in from the surrounding area. And he thinks, my God, this is extraordinary, I'm being mobbed. But actually, this is the beginning of a tsunami of adulation and excitement. It's, it's almost orgiastic in its intensity. And it starts right there when he's had a cup of tea and he steps out into this maelstrom of people. And it just goes on from there until we reach April the 14th, 1961, exactly 48 hours after the flight. 
By this time, every single news media organization in the world is absolutely full of it. I mean, page after page, and the New York Times goes on for pages and pages and pages. In London, all the papers here in the UK are describing this as the event of the 20th century. That's how it's being described by everybody. It's across the world. He has become almost overnight this young man with this dazzling smile, five foot four inches tall so that he can fit inside a spherical capsule doing service for a nuclear missile, is actually the most famous man on the planet. And on April the 14th, 1961, this most famous man on the planet arrives at Moscow airport for the start of a parade that turns into the biggest party Moscow will ever have had in its history. It is astonishing what happens. He gets off the plane, he walks up a red carpet, there are banks of cameras anywhere, everywhere. I mean, this stuff was being pumped in 1961 live to parts of the world. Richard Dimbleby, the famous Richard Dimbleby, does a live commentary on the BBC. And he's actually saying, as Gagarin walks along that red carpet, he's actually saying, here is a man, you can hear the awe in his voice, who has done and seen things no human has done or seen before. And he embraces Khrushchev the premier and all these other Politburo members. And then he sees his wife who's there. And this is the first time he's seen her since he's flown, since he last saw her when he said goodbye to her in Moscow a few days previously. She is terrified. She's the shyest person you could ever imagine. And so she's been plunged into the middle of a nightmare because as far as she's concerned, the whole world is looking at her and she doesn't want anyone to look at her. And she's kind of yanked to this now. And off they go. In this motorcade to Red Square that I have footage of from lots and lots of cameras that were shooting this stuff in 35 millimeter color. And it's incredible. This is genuine stuff. This is not stuff that is being you know, manufactured. This is a genuinely spontaneous event. I mean, the Russians are crazy for this guy. And he gets to Red Square. And of course, it's a propaganda exercise. It's, of course it is. And Khrushchev is saying, this is a great moment for the Soviets and for communism and a leap forward for our communist path and our program and all the rest of this. And as that is happening, as this parade is happening, as Yuri Gagarin is being fated in the fabulous Kremlin palace and the hero of the Soviet Union gold star is being pinned to his chest in front of hundreds and thousands of people in this star-studded party with chandeliers hanging from the ceiling in this great palatial hall. On the other side of the world, at exactly the same time, at almost exactly, to the minute almost the same time, John F. Kennedy, the president, is sitting in the White House cabinet room with his advisors, and there is a meeting, and we know what happened in this meeting because a time journalist who happened to be in the White House was invited into the meeting to record it, and he wrote down what happened, and what happened was that Kennedy sits there tapping his teeth with a pencil, which is a sign of anxiety with him, a well-known sign of anxiety, and he says, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Over and over again. What can we do? How do we leapfrog them? And he actually says, it's noted by this time journalist, he actually says, you know, if the janitor here at the White House has a good idea, I want to hear what that idea is. We have to catch them up. We have to. And that is where the moon idea starts to gain traction. If we've lost this space race, Maybe what we'll do is we'll start another space race. This one, spectacularly, to put a human being on the moon. And it is definitely the case that although that program existed in some kind of nascent form before that, and although it wasn't quite decided at that point, because other things like a disastrous invasion of the bear pigs backed by the CIA only a few days later added fuel to the flames of Kennedy's humiliation, in the end, it was precisely that that made Kennedy go to Congress and ask for funds at the end of May 1961, just a month later, that we have to go to the moon.
I therefore ask the Congress, above and beyond the increases I have earlier requested for space activities, to provide the funds which are needed to meet the following national goals. First, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. And we, the Americans, will lead the way. So it became a test of superpower strength and credibility and ultimately of hegemony in the world. And that's how the moon happened. Armstrong is on the moon, Neil Armstrong, 38-year-old American, standing on the surface of the moon on this July 20th, 1969. It's Many thanks to Stephen Walker talking to us about the first human to leave our planet. It was based on his book Beyond, the astonishing story of the first human to leave our planet and journey into space, which is published by HarperCollins. And you can find out much more information on the website stephenwalkerbeyond.com. Stay with us. After the break, we continue to gaze up to the stars and meet a real-life astronaut. This is The Curator. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Welcome back to The Curator. I'm Georgina Godwin, and you're tuned to a special edition of our show looking at space exploration. Earlier in the programme, we were captivated by the story and the history of sending the first human into space and how Yuri Gagarin took that brave risk for humankind. And now we wanted to delve into our archive to bring you a conversation with Charlie Duke, who was a lunar module pilot on Apollo 16, the tenth of just 12 people who've walked on the moon, and one of even fewer to have driven on it. Back in June 2019, Charlie sat down with Monocle's Andrew Muller at the Starmer Science and Art Festival in Zurich, produced in collaboration with Kaspersky. Andrew started by asking Charlie about what astronauts talk about amongst themselves as they're part of a very exclusive group that has actually left planet Earth. You know, when we first did it many years ago, uh, it was quite a, a popular theme. What was your impression? Things like that. There are only 24 of us have seen the whole circle mm. of the Earth. Millions, billions of people have seen the photographs we took of the circle of the Earth. But the photographs cannot capture the drama and the emotion that one sees when you see the, uh, this beautiful Earth just suspended in the blackness of space. Our view from about uh, 30,000 kilometers was the Arctic Circle down across Canada, the United States, Mexico, and Central America. And the west coast of South uh, California was clear, and you could see the Rocky Mountains and all of the southwest United States. And it was all brown. The snow and the clouds were pure white in the ocean. The Pacific and the Gulf of Mexico was just crystal blue, and that jewel was just suspended in the blackness of space. It was breathtaking. Were you and the other astronauts surprised by those moments of epiphany at seeing the world like that? Had you thought in advance about what that might feel like, or was it one of those things where you were just so focused on completing the mission, getting there and getting back in one piece that you hadn't thought about, whether it might have an impact beyond that? Well, of course, I'd seen the photographs at Apollo mm. 11 and 12 and all of them had taken, 
but the photographs do not capture the emotion that one has when you see it for the first time. So I was, uh, I wouldn't say I was uh, transfixed by it, but it was a breathtaking. You know, I'm seeing the earth that only very few people have seen uh, in history. Mm. And so that was a very significant moment. I didn't dwell on it very long because we were busy docking with the lunar module and stuff like that, but it's, it floated under my window. I got the chance just to look out and uh, see that beautiful Earth. This has been said a lot about the Apollo programs. that They, they did galvanise, I guess, a sense of collective enterprise and collective accomplishment in humanity that all the world's peoples could look up and see, well, a small select grouping of us accomplished this monumental thing. Was that something that you felt at the time about Apollo, that you were, you were acting on behalf of uh, an uplifting enterprise for humanity? Or was it, again, just thinking, we have here a bunch of extremely complicated problems to solve and that's what we're focusing on? Somewhere in between that. <laughs> uh, I was just focused on my job and the, uh, the techniques and the knowledge that we needed to do complete our, our mission. And uh, I think everybody, at least on the crew and in mission control, had the idea, if this thing fails, it's not going to be my fault. <laughs> so you were really focused on doing your job. And uh, so as I look back on it, it wasn't spiritual. It wasn't philosophical adventure. It was a, a, an experience for me. It was an adventure and a, uh, a technical challenge to finish this mission and get to do everything that you had planned to do. So our focus was the operation side of but enjoying it while we were there. John and I had trained in, uh, in, uh, with humor in our training because training was very arduous. And so we tried to break the tensions. And so the, we decided on the moon we'd have the same experience, that we would continue just like we were in training. And if you listen to our transcripts back uh, while we were on the surface, we just were having a lot of fun. But the focus was to get the job completed. And so I didn't sit there on a stand on the moon and ponder the origins of the universe or anything <laughs> like that. It was just, let's do the job and enjoy it. It was beautiful. I mean, it was not mesmerizing, but it was certainly one of the most uh, magnificent deserts I'd ever seen in my life, untouched, unspoiled. And I kept having this, this feeling, nobody's ever been here before. And these steps are the first steps in the Descartes Highlands ever. Yes. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the idea of it being fun because I, was, I wasn't sure how to bring that up in what was obviously the context of a very serious, difficult and dangerous mission. But was there a part of you when you were, for example, driving around the moon on the lunar rover that was basically just thinking Yahoo? Exactly. <laughs> I, I, in fact, I use fantastic and Yahoo a lot. And, <laughs> Uh, I didn't drive the rover. Uh, John was the driver. Uh, my job was to navigate and to take pictures every 50 meters and to describe the terrain that we were going over because underway you didn't have any TV. And so my job was to, to be the travel guide, but my <laughs> travel group was in Houston. And so I was describing all of this uh, terrain. Uh, and we were having, uh, John was speeding down the mountains and we were bouncing up and down. Look out, John. And he'd do a U-turn around, or not a U-turn, but a, a, a spin around a rock or you go over a crater. And we didn't know what was over there. And as you went over, you might have a big crater or a rock or something in front of you. And uh, so it was fun. And bounce, the, the rover was really fun to be on. You spoke earlier about being a, a bit reluctant to, to ponder, I guess, the, the, the philosophical unquantifiables while attempting to do your job. And, and I know it's something people have looked for a lot, I think, in the astronauts who went to the moon and came back, that did you, between you, figure out something the rest of us haven't figured out. And I know you, of course, became a Christian in 1978, I think, if I recall rightly, after returning from the moon or some years after returning from the moon. Did the experience of going there, coming back, seeing the Earth by itself, hanging in space, did any part of that change the way you, you looked at the universe? Uh, not at the time. Jim Irwin was a committed Christian when he went. He quoted scripture on the moon. Apollo 8, the first TV show from the moon as they on Christmas Eve, they quoted from Genesis, they read from Genesis. Uh, Buzz Aldrin had a commun Christian communion on the moon. So there was some spiritual side of some of these flights, but in my case and John's case, it wasn't. 
Uh, it was, uh, I guess when I got back, a lot of us had this problem of, well, I'm 36 years old. I've climbed to the top of my ladder uh, and uh, things ought to be safe, uh, great. But, but I had this no peace. There was a drive in my side. What are you going to do now with the rest of your life? And unfortunately, like a lot of us, we started having marriage problems. It was very difficult on the families. And so my wife was, uh, and I were in uh, serious trouble uh, marriage-wise. And so three years later, uh, we realized that something's got, she realized something's got to happen. And well, she said, I tried everything but God. Said, God, if you're real, I give you my life. If you're not, I give up. I want to die. Well, I watched her change in two months. And two and a half years later, after we'd left NASA, uh, I had a similar experience uh, where I realized, you know, this is really true. And so I said, Lord, I gave you my life. And that gave me peace for the very first time. And it gave me a, a more wonderful perspective of the universe. Well, just a final question then, and it, it goes back to the events of 50 years ago next month when you, you briefly had, I think, what must have been the most famous speaking voice in the world as Capcom talking to Apollo 11. Listening to it again, which I, which I did a few days ago, you do sound actually, I think, remarkably calm. And I, I did want to ask, did you know how tight the fuel situation was with the Eagle Lander? We did. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, first off, uh, we had some real problems with the computer computer overloads. And when I saw those alarms, I said, well, we're dead in the water. We got to report. But the mission control team, the flight controller that was in charge of the computer knew, we're go flight. And so I hollered, we're go. But that started raising the tension in mission control. So by the time we got down to the last three or 400 feet, 100 meters or so, we were getting very low on fuel. We had a reserve of 4%, if I recall, and so when we got, as we approached that 4% reserve, we would allow the crew to know, okay, you got 60 seconds to land. Then I called 30 seconds to land, uh, and they still weren't on the ground, but they were close. And uh, 13 seconds later, I heard Buzz Aldrin say, contact engine stop. And so... And you can imagine the tension in mission control at that point. I don't think I can. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I've been in mission control, Apollo 10, there for 13, and 17 is back up. Never felt anything like this. Anyway, they were on the ground, and then I might sound calm, but I wasn't calm. I mean, it was holding your breath. And so when I, when Neil, I heard Neil say, Houston Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed, I just gave this big sigh of relief, and I said, Roger, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. And that was the truth. <laughs> I mean, I didn't make that up. It was, you know, we've, it's a big sigh of relief, and it's like popping a balloon, you know, this about to purse, and, and this tension just drained out of the room, and it was great elation. That was Charlie Duke, lunar module pilot of Apollo 16, in conversation with Monocle's Andrew Muller. And that's all we've got time for on this week's special edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and edited by Steph Chungu and Jack Jewers. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>